And uh, as we've heard the reading of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to that passage if you haven't done so already, Philippians chapter 1. As you're finding your way there, I I just want to make mention of uh, a couple of things briefly. If you didn't see as you were passing through in the fellowship hall out there, we've got things out for Operation Christmas Child. So make sure you take a look at that, and uh, you can, it's, it's, Christmas seems like a long way off, but uh, it's not too early to get started on those, so make sure you take a look at those. And then also, we're going to have some information in the bulletin next week, but uh, in November, for a few weeks, we're going to have a, uh, be starting up a new class during the 10 o'clock hour that will just run for a, a short period of time, just three or four weeks, and it's sort of a get-to-know-you class for those of you who might be newer to Brown Corners. We're not uh, putting it like a... Uh, time stamp on it, like if you've been attending since such and such. But if you're newer here and uh, we haven't had a chance to meet or connect, um, I'll, I'll be in there and we'll just kind of be talking a little bit about what Brown Corners is about. It'll be pretty, um, pretty informal. Uh, we'll get to know each other a little bit better. And so even if you can only make one of those or if you want to come to all three or four of those, we want to just invite you for a chance to, to get to know one another a little bit better. And uh, we'll, as I mentioned, we'll have some information on that in the bulletin starting next week. The title of the message today is Praying from the Heart, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 as the Apostle Paul winds down his introduction with this beautiful three-verse prayer. We, we could argue that it began back in verse 3 because he talked about giving thanks to God for the Philippians in his prayers, and, uh, and, and now though it, it really builds to a crescendo in these beautiful verses. But before we talk about prayer, I want to just take a minute and, and pray. So let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these beautiful words, the, 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 the heartfelt yearning that the Apostle Paul had for his dearly beloved friends in Philippi. May the words leap off the pages and onto our own hearts as we think about how to pray for our own walk with you, for one another, for our world. I pray that the insights in these uh, these couple of verses would be, would be powerful for us this morning. May we see the love that you call us to have and to grow in, this love that's rooted in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've, we've touched on prayer now for a, a number of weeks over the last oh, six weeks or so. It's come up in several of the the uh, passages that we've been working through, but we haven't really focused in on prayer specifically for an entire message. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about prayer. When you think about uh, having a conversation with God, talking to God, what what are some of the, the, the descriptors or phrases or even emotions that you feel when you think about prayer? Is it, does it bring you joy? Do, do you think about, uh, uh, man, okay, here comes another guilt trip because I know I'm not doing it the way I need to, to do. What, what, what kind of feelings arise in your heart when you think about prayer? What, what pictures come to your mind? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us as we talk about prayer this morning, and we see his heart. And I love that he's not talking about prayer, but he's praying for them. He, he tells them what he's praying for, for their walk with Christ. There's a razor-sharp focus on the way Paul prays in the way that these believers should live their lives as ones worthy of Christ. We've seen Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians. We've seen his deep affection 
for the Philippians. And now we're going to see this beautiful prayer for the Philippians. And I wrote down four things. It, it, it kind of depends on how you break apart Paul's uh, clauses here and, and, and everything. But I, I wrote down four broad things that Paul prays for here. You could probably break it down even more than that, but we're just going to make note of four of them here. And the first thing that Paul prays for is an ever-increasing love. He prays for an ever-increasing love. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. This love is that deep sea, it's, it's the agape love, this, this sober kind of Christ-centered, only love that God can give, this kind of value, this kind of love that places a high value on someone, this sacrificial love. This is not a superficial kind of love that Paul is praying for. This is, this is a, a love that's rooted deeply in the very love that comes from Christ. And he prays that this love would be deep and it would grow. He says, I pray that your love would keep on growing. That there's this, this continuous present tense. That, that word can mean, uh, that Greek word can mean abound more and more. When Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 9, 12, it's translated an overflow. This is an idea of way more than enough. It's like what your kids will come home with on, um, on Halloween night when it comes to candy. And you would just assume they have like one or two pieces. And they're going to come home with bags and bags teeming of candy. It's, 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 it's this picture of just this super abundance. I... I've, I've used this illustration before, and, and it was kind of met with some blank stares, but I'm going to use it again. Um, it, it, this firmly situates me as a kid growing up in the early 90s, but one of my favorite cartoons as a kid was uh, the, the TV show DuckTales. I don't know, yeah, okay, okay, I got an amen out there. At least somebody's seen that. And, and I used to love the scenes where Scrooge McDuck, he had this huge money bin, if you never saw the show, or they actually had some books, some kids' books about it too. And he had this gigantic... Um, it, it was almost, almost like a, a grain silo that he stored his money in. And he would just go for swims in, in, his, in his coins and swim through his money. And I, and I just used to, as a kid, think, like, it would be just unbelievable to be able to do. You have that kind of money, you could just, like, play around in it, like the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese's or something. Like, let's just throw it around and play it. Like, that's the picture here of the, the love that, that Paul wants the Philippians to know, that there's this super abundance, just overflowed, over more than you can imagine, just being swallowed up in the love of God. He says, I want you to know this love. I want you to experience this love, and I want this love to keep on growing, to keep on abounding in your life. Notice that Paul is not praying, um, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even give a, a direct object to this statement of love. He doesn't say your love for God. He doesn't say your love for one another. He says that this is, this is the kind of love I want you to have that comes from God and overflows in this limitless abundance. It's what he prayed for in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 when he said this to the, the Thessalonians. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. This is the kind of love that God calls for us to have. But it's not a decision that we make. It's an embracing of Jesus more deeply that causes this love to overflow. 
He says, I pray that that love would overflow, that you would fall in love more and more with Jesus, that his love would well up in your heart and would overflow and splash out onto those around you. You get the picture here? He's not just, he's not exhorting them and saying, guys, love better. But what he wants them to do is come to know Jesus in such a deep and profound way that that love just is spilling over in their lives and in the lives of those around them. But notice that he bases this love on knowledge. He says that you may, um, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. What's he mean here? This is actually a pretty common way for the Apostle Paul to pray. I'll mention a few verses in just a moment. But, but he, 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 he wants this love to flow from this deep experiential knowledge. This, this word knowledge doesn't mean just an understanding of facts, an accumulating of data. Data does not make us love more. Knowing more stuff does not make us better lovers of one another. Rather, he's talking about, and even it's built into this Greek word, it's an experiential knowledge. It's a personal relationship. We understand this in our daily relationships. Think about it. Someone you love, your, your spouse, your girlfriend, or your, your, your boyfriend, or your, your, one of your best friends. You, you, don't, you don't have a stat sheet on them, like a quick reference stat sheet. Well, let me just phrase that. If you do have a stat sheet, that's kind of weird. Okay, you, you, you don't have this list of facts about how you know them and what you know about them. Your knowledge of them is, it, it comes from spending time with them, through going through experiences with them. Husbands and wives, you know the kinds of things that you do in their lives that bring joy. They can bring a smile to their face, the kind of jokes that they laugh at. The kinds of things that warm their heart, the kinds of things that make their day, the kinds of foods they like to eat and places they like to go and the experiences. You, you understand that, not because you read a book about them, not because you've, you've accumulated a stat sheet from a previous boyfriend or a girlfriend, but you've gone through these experiences and you've come to know them. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know God in this experiential way. This, this, love for, this love that you have will increase through this experiential knowledge of God. He prays this way in other places. Or Ephesians 1.17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he says, We ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, growing in the knowledge of God. In Philemon 6, he says, I, I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. Remember this, a superficial love for God is a sure sign of superficial knowledge of God. If we don't experientially know Christ by spending time with him, meditating on his word, spending time with his people, and communing with him through prayer, we're not going to know him in this experiential way. And that love, will, that the well of love will quickly run dry. When we commune with Christ as we seek to know him intimately, the love of Christ will splash over in the, love, in the lives of other, other people. So this, this first prayer request is that, that the Christians there in Philippi would have this ever-increasing 
love. This love that's rooted in an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, not just knowing information. You can know Bible doctrines. You could describe in, in eloquent details the hypostatic union of Christ, the merging of his humanity and divinity. And you could write a scholarly paper about it, but you could have zero love in your heart. That love only comes through this relational knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we know him and deepen that relationship, it impacts and overflows in the lives of others. The second thing he prays for comes from verse 10, that you may approve the things that are superior. I just wrote down, uh, being able to assess what is best. You could phrase that however you want. Being able to, to, to figure out how to put this knowledge into action. Being able to live with wisdom. Paul prays here that they would know how to discern what is best from the second best. What is very good from what is good. What is absolutely essential regarding life in Christ. This is, this is a practical prayer here. He wants the, the, the believers here to know how to use their time wisely, what to invest in, what, what to, who to spend time with, what to, what to do with their lives. I mean, this is a practical prayer. And how important is this for us in, in the 21st century? Paul didn't have computers and smartphones and information flying at him a million miles a second. We know about everybody's life all the time in real time. We know about world happenings all the time in real time. In a lot of ways, it's not healthy for us. It's overwhelming and stressful. We take on things that we shouldn't be taking on and all this stuff. And so Paul's prayer for learning to assess what is best is so crucial for us. What do I need to be reading, God? What do I need to be spending my time on, God? What, what, do, what do I need to be teaching my kids, God? How do I, how do I, even, I mean, parents today, we're, we're inundated with so many things that we're told our kids need to be involved in and need to, need to be and they need to experience this or they're going to need counseling when they grow up and all that stuff. And, and it can be so overwhelming. God, what is it that you want me to focus on? What is it that you want me to use my 24 hours with? How can I assess what is best? He gives them a little bit of a, a pointer later on in the book in chapter 4, verse 8. He, this, is a, this is a good litmus test for starters when he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. As we pray this prayer, God, help me to assess what is best. This is a great place to start right here, Philippians 4.8. That, that can help weed out a lot of things that vie for our attention and time and, and, and resources. How can I focus, God, on the things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, those things that are morally excellent and praiseworthy? Peter T. O'Brien put it this way. He said, The content of the petition was that the love of God within the readers, 
might increase beyond all measure, and that as it increased, it might penetrate more deeply into that personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, as well into all types of situations involving practical conduct. Let me boil that down. What he's saying is, is that the more you spend time with Jesus, see this is tied to the first petition, the more you spend time with Jesus and his love grows in your heart, the more clearly you'll have discernment. Ba- basically, as we begin to ask ourselves, should I do this? Should I spend time with this? Is this wise? We're going to boil it down to, does this help me love Jesus or others better? Am I loving Jesus and loving other people by doing this, by spending time with this? That begins to sift out so much of what vies for our attention. Let's pray, my brothers and sisters, for a discerning love that God's love might well up in our hearts so that we can know what is best, what he's called us to. The third thing that Paul prays for for the Christians here is faithfulness until the return of Christ faithfulness until the return of Christ. He says in verse 10, you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Those words, pure and blameless, give us the picture of holiness. In fact, some scholars say the word pure there, it's often used to refer to, to metals or other objects that have, been, um, that have been alloyed and weakened by being brought together with other cheaper materials. And he says, listen, don't let your spiritual life be weakened and compromised by a worldliness. I want you to live a life that is pure and blameless, one that brings honor to Jesus Christ. And he draws attention to the, to the day of Christ. I, I love this phrase. He's already used it once. He used it in verse 6. That he who began a good work in you, that he might carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the, the return of Jesus was, was absolutely real for the Apostle Paul. Like, I'm, I'm talking about, like, not, like, beyond Bible prophecy and being interested in what does revelation mean and all that. Like, he just, he loved Jesus and couldn't wait to see him. You see, the return of Jesus was not just an event on the prophecy timeline. The return of Jesus was a, a, a reuniting with his deepest love. Think about times when you've been away from someone you love for a long period of time and you just can't wait to be reunited. You can't wait to see them again. And that, I mean, we've, we've all been in tears with uh, those videos that you see on, on YouTube and in Facebook uh, of, of dads and moms that come home from being deployed overseas and being reunited with their kids who haven't seen them in months and months and months. There's not one of us who doesn't get choked up when we see that. Just think about like that being like exponentially multiplied when we get to see Jesus. Like the, the lover of our souls, the, the one who has brought us into relationship with the Father, who's, who has redeemed us out of a life of sin and brought us into his family as his own precious child. This, this our Savior, is going to welcome us with open arms will be reunited in a way that we've never experienced before because we've never seen him face to face. The Apostle Paul, I'm convinced, as I read his writings, I'm just convinced that this was a, this was a, a, a song that was always playing in the background. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. And it wasn't a, a fearful thing. 
It wasn't a, 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 a date that he was looking for on the counter. It was a reuniting with his deepest love, his most precious Savior. And it played in the background. It was not an abstract doctrine that he thought of periodically, like, oh, I should preach a sermon about that from time to time. But it was just there. It was an ever-present reality. What if we lived like that? I'll be the first to admit, I don't. I get so consumed with what's in front of me. Things are stressing me out, practices, health, what I'm going to eat for dinner, what, 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 the, what I got to do this week, what's on my agenda and calendar and, and all this stuff. And I just, I don't, I'm not conscious aware that at any moment we could hear that trumpet. At any moment Jesus could, could call us into his presence. This shaped Paul's life, my brothers and sisters. This shaped how he lived his daily life. Once again, Peter T. O'Brien puts it so well when he says, the purpose of this love increasing to knowledge and wisdom was that they might be able to distinguish the really important issues in their lives together and to act on the basis of such distinctions. Paul's goal for them was that they might be fully prepared for the second coming as those who are both pure and blameless. You see how this prayer ties it all together? That knowing the love of God more intimately gives us wisdom to live out in the world and make wise decisions. And as we do so, informed by the second coming of Jesus Christ, the imminent return of our Savior, we, we are driven to a life of purity and holiness. And that leads to the last petition, a God-glorifying life of fruitfulness. He says in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise of God. Paul longed to see the fruit of the Spirit come to ripen in the hearts and lives of these Philippians. It, it reminded me of Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8, where the prophet writes, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It, it sends its roots out toward the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. My brothers and sisters, when our roots go down deep into the love of Christ, the fruits of righteousness, these fruits of the Spirit, which is what I think he's referring to, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, those things ripen in our hearts and life. We don't manufacture those. We don't just simply decide, I'm going to be fruitful today. That comes from a deeply rooted life in Christ's love. You can't have spiritual fruit without being deeply rooted in the life of Christ. Those of you who have ever tried to, to grow fruit trees or any, any kind of um, vegetables, you know that the, the roots have to be good. Like you, you have to have a good root system. There has to be nutrients and, and water that, that brings life to these plants. The, the, the tree that's rooted by the, by the stream has this grow, this ever-increasing, continuous source of life. And in an arid world where Jeremiah was writing these things, that they understood the importance of water, that they understood the importance of the source of life in order for fruit to take place. If our roots are not dug down deep into the love of Jesus Christ, we will not be fruit-bearing people. We'll have times of moral, like, 
rallying cries of like, I got to do better this week. And we have a couple good days and do a few nice things. But, but life comes at us. And if we're not deeply rooted and dug down deep into the love of Christ, we just re- resort to our same old paths of sin and grumpiness and bitterness or whatever, anger, wherever your go-to default response is when life is not going your way. Paul called them to be dug down deep. We need the source of love. Jesus said this in John 15, 9, abide in my love. Hang out here. Remain here. I read this week a story of Lawrence Arabia when he was in Paris, Lawrence of Arabia when he was in Paris after World War I, and he had brought some Arab friends into the city. And he thought he would impress them with the sights of the city, so he took them around, showed them the Louvre, the Arch of Triumph, Napoleon's tomb, and, and just all these, all these places that he thought would wow them. But they found little interest in those things. The thing that really interested them was the faucet in the bathtub of their hotel room. They, come, they came from a place much like Jeremiah did. They understood the value of water. And they spent a ton of time there turning it on and off. They thought it was wonderful. All they had to do was turn the handle, and there was water whenever they wanted. Sometime later, when they were ready to leave Paris and return to the east, Lawrence found them in the bathroom trying to detach the faucet from the wall. You see, they said, it's very dry in Arabia. What we need are faucets. If we have them, we'll have all the water we want. Lawrence had to explain that the effectiveness of the faucets didn't lie in the faucets themselves, but in the immense system of waterworks to which they were attached. And he had to point out that, that behind this lay the rain and snowfall in the Alps that made all of this possible for the water to come out here. Listen, if we want fruit in our lives, we can't, we can't produce it on our own. We can't detach it from the wall and, and have, hope that, it, that it's there. Our lives need to be deeply rooted in Jesus Christ and his immense and eternal and unstopping love for us that will never cease. When we understand that the the flow to the faucet is unlimited, we we can begin to tap into that and, and experience that love ourselves and let it flow in fruitfulness to the lives of others. And he says all of this, he sort of finishes where he started back in verse 3. He says, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Since the source of this fruit is God, the praise goes back to God. We don't, we don't heap any of that on ourselves. We don't get any of the credit. In, um, in, this, in this book that just came out, it's, it's a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Um, Tyler Staten recounts a story, and if, if some of you who like church history, you may uh, recall the, this revival that took place at a place in Germany called Hernhut under the leadership of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. What an amazing name. <laughs> we'll, we can call him Count Nick for short. And he had moved there with about, I think it was about 48 others, and they longed to establish this community that was devoted to God and fruitful for God. And they just wanted to see revival take place and this outpouring like they saw, like was seen in the early church in the book of Acts. And they had several years of frustration as they were trying to figure out how to just make life work like it did back in the book of Acts. And um, they had a great vision. They had a great passion. 
But a few years in, they became disillusioned. They came to the sober realization that their shared agreement and their collective willpower just simply weren't enough to produce what they were looking for. So the author of this book writes this. He says, confronted by their own weakness, they finally started to pray like monks. And he's been talking about that throughout the book, what it looks like to just be devoted to prayer. It says, 48 refugees committed to a disciplined rhythm of daily prayer. Just five years into that commitment, and I, I, said, I know he says just five years, but um, it, it, did, it took five years. It wasn't just a couple of weeks of commitment. It was five years in. A refugee village of 32 homes had inadvertently launched the greatest missions movement in world history. The prayer meeting that started with those refugees went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for 100 years. A century of unceasing prayer. You can read about this. The Moravian revival was a hundred-year prayer meeting that transformed the tiny village of Hernhut into the missional base of the 18th century and the catalyst of the modern missions movement. One writer says they weren't fanatics, they were radicals. They, came, they became radicals by growing deep roots through this committed practice. They chose fidelity to Jesus, and he saves the best adventures for those who he freely chooses. For those who freely choose his love, they started praying like monks of the wildest and most undignified variety, and they ended up with a story even beyond their lofty vision. True radicals are always deeply rooted in the love of Jesus. What was their secret? Plenty of people ask this question. Plenty of people want to bottle up and imitate the magic of the Moravian revival. In the words of Zinzendorf himself, Here's the recipe. I have one passion. It is He, only He. For them, it was all about love. It wasn't about the strategy. It wasn't about trying to, to implement a bunch of principles and practices. It was being rooted in the love of Christ and going before this God of love in prayer. It was believing, like Ephesians 3.20 says, that He's able to do far and above beyond what we can even ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. You see, Jesus longs to serve as a channel through which God fulfills our prayers like this. Through Jesus, God has showered endless love upon us. Endless. Unimaginable. We can't fathom the kind of love that God has for us. Jesus went to the cross to die in our place, was resurrected, and lives and reigns alongside the Father. In placing faith and solace in Jesus Christ, God proclaims that in terms of our bond with Him, we are pardoned, united, embraced, and favored. We are loved. Jesus doesn't become simply a model of genuine love, but the catalyst who ignites that love within our thankful spirit, just like that tree by the waters being fruitful. The deeper we grasp the boundless love we receive from the Creator, the greater our love for Him grows, fueling our desire to extend His love to all. As we close here in these few minutes, I want to just take a minute before I pray and just give us a chance to pray right where we are. I know that we've done this a few times, but it's, it's not especially common. Um, if we, if we believe the kinds of things that 
these verses talk about, that I've been talking about for the last 35 minutes, if we truly believe that, and we believe that, that coming before God in prayer is important and makes a difference and is crucial to His work, then let's just do some of that right now. Um, whether it's praying in your own heart before God, uh, saddling up alongside someone in the seat next to you, I don't care if it gets noisy in here, pray out loud. Let's, let's take a few moments and talk to God. As you read the book of Acts, everything that God does throughout the book of Acts is, is preceded with a prayer meeting. It's preceded with believers coming together to pray. And, and, and we will only pray deeply as we are affected deeply by the love of God. We will only pray deeply as we believe in the power of God to work through our prayers. So whether it's, it's these four petitions that you want to use as an outline to pray, or whether God's just immediately laying something on your heart, or, or it's just some praise and worship, some thanksgiving, let's just take a few moments of quiet to just, um, to just pray. Again, pray out loud, pray in your heart, and then after about four or five minutes, I'll, I'll close us with a word of prayer. So let's just take some time and put this passage into action.
thank you for spending some time in prayer. I know it's a little freaky when the pastor throws a curveball at you and um, changes things up a little bit. God's called us to be people who pray with one another and for one another. And I'll just add this in here as a little applicational plug. Um, every Sunday morning at 745, I know that's early, but you guys are first service people, so if you can get here at 830, uh, we're right across in the, in the prayer room here. If you want to join us, we're just praying for the day, for God's work in our midst. And we'd love to have you join us on Sunday mornings at 745 for that time of, time of prayer. Um, prayer is, is not a duty. It's not a box to check. Um, I know even in a couple of the quotes I read, it referred to it as a discipline, and I, and I get what they're trying to say, but I don't even like that word. Uh, uh, it's an overflow of our heart of love for Jesus and one another, and, and we get a chance to talk with God himself. Um, and so uh, just keep in mind uh, the way that this is rooted in love, and it won't be a drudgery for you. Let's um, Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for for your word we thank you for we thank you that, that there's a way that we can talk to you you've called it prayer we thank you that when we talk to you you listen and you you'll hear lots of different stuff and you care you care about the things that seem insignificant to other people but are important to us who care and we can talk to you in regular old language we don't have to have fancy dressed up bible words and we can just talk to you about what's on our hearts and i thank you god that through prayer you've promised to do great things not because of the the, the mode is somehow unique, but because the God that we're talking to is has got more power than we can ever fathom. God, I pray that you would remind us to pray for the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul laid out here. That we would pray for a, a growing love, that we would pray for a discerning spirit, that we would pray for faithfulness and holiness until Christ returns, that we would pray for fruitful lives. These are city and county and world-changing prayers. They're big, God-centered prayers. May they flow from our heart that's, that's captured with your love for us, God. We thank you for prayer. Help us to grow in this communion with you. Now may the God of all grace grant you an ever-increasing love for one another and for him, which grows as you come to know him more deeply. May this love grant you discernment in all you face this week as you delight in his return. And may you be filled with the fruit of the Spirit through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of the triune God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God bless you this week.